Welcome to the very first episode of 83 Dutchmen, a podcast made primarily for the middle-aged men who were once members of the class of 1983 at the Collegiate School for Boys, founded by the Dutch in 1628. I'm Taylor Molly, and I'm the class agent for this August class, and today is the last day of August. And if you don't know that this is only my second year as being class agent, then I likely have no idea who you are or why you are listening to this podcast, but I welcome you just as I welcome all the roughly 57-year-old men who once were my classmates and friends in the 1970s and 80s in New York City. Why on earth would I start a podcast for such a likely small audience? In short, to create more connection. Last year, the class of 1983 had the highest percentage of participation of any class in the entire school, by far. And I think that level of commitment during these weird times had a lot to do with the connection I managed to create through the silly poems I wrote and sent to the whole class every time someone made a gift. You got a recent photo of an old classmate, a little news, and I wrote a cheeky poem honoring the donor. But there are so many other stories that I'd like to share that are unconnected to giving money to a rich private school that might not really need it, even though I may get in trouble for saying that. So I hope this podcast is about those other stories, those insights, recent news, successes, failures, regrets, and all manner of artful epiphanies of the members of the class of 1983. In each episode, I'm going to talk to a different member of our class or community, and there was no question of who my first guest would be because I forgot to mention that this is his idea, which he stole from his class of Yale 1987 in the lead up to their 35th reunion year. Last spring, please welcome our head boy, you may remember him from the fifth grade musical of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, where he played the part of Benjamin, the youngest of the 12 sons of Jacob, David Kramer. How are you? I was Benjamin. And, uh, you know, not, it's not a, something I put on my CV. I was a small kid. And so Benjamin was the youngest of the brothers. So I think I was cast for my physique. Certainly not for my singing voice. Um, and if I'm not wait, wait, if I'm not mistaken, you were the baker. I was the uh, either the baker or the butler. Uh, I would have to talk to Billy Stern because Billy Stern was the other one. Jo uh, Steve Miller, who played the part of Joseph, ran into me and Billy Stern uh, in the prison of Pharaoh. Ali Benedetto was a fantastic Elvis Pharaoh. Yes, yeah, he he stole the show. Speaking of things you do put on your CV, do you have any mixed feelings about being named head boy? And do you tell people, yes, I was head boy of my all boys classroom uh, in 1983? First, let me say that I don't think of myself as a class leader for being head boy because it's on the last day of school. Like there's never a, you know, I, I wasn't like parading my medal through the 
through the hallways. And in fact, Jesse Cohen asked me that very question recently, for some reason, apropos of nothing. He said, would you have preferred to have been, you know, named head boy earlier in the year? And I, my answer was like, no. I mean, it's like uh, for everybody who's not elected head boy, you know, they're not going to be happy for the head boy. Like, you don't want the head boy sh- strutting around the, the hallway. So, I, you know, I was fine. It was the, the last day of school. Um, is there a downside to being head boy? I think anybody who gets like a big, uh, you know, honor in their youth, you know, worries about whether they uh, peak too soon. Um, but it doesn't really come up that that frequently. Um, so hopefully I didn't hopefully I didn't peak too soon. But I know it was a huge moment for my my mother. I, I sort of recall my brother saying that before they named the head boy, she was squeezing his hand so, so, so tightly. So she was. Uh, she she must have known that you were one on the short list. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I spoke with your friend Tim Harkness, who was is maybe still the class agent for your Yale class of 1987, uh, um, and the podcast that he produced, and. He, uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you listened to that and what effect you think it might have had on your big Yale reunion last spring? Well, you know, it's, it, it, it will have now been 40 years when we have our reunion since high school, and it was 35 years for the college reunion. And I think any classmate you talk to in their 40-year journey has a a, innumerable angles you could explore about their lives, their achievements, their regrets, their joys, their feelings about collegiate. I mean, many of our classmates, not me, the inaugural guest, but most of our classmates have, you know, very ambivalent feelings about collegiate. And, um, you know, whether it's talking about growing up in the gritty New York City street scene of the 70s or going to collegiate um, and all that entails or um, our journeys since and, you know, what collegiate means to us, you know, I would be uh, completely interested slash fascinated in hearing any conversation you have with any of our classmates in the same way that um, even with, with Yale, class of 1,200 people, I didn't know half of the uh, classmates being interviewed. And I still was hanging on every word because everybody has an interesting life arc and it's interesting to explore those those parts of it and so when we gathered for our 35th reunion there was a lot of mm, there was a lot of authenticity and uh, emotional honesty and we had, we had heard these stories because he basically dropped an episode a week uh, leading up to the reunion and so it, it helped to add a little momentum. And because we're not a big class, uh, between now and May, you could talk to as many classmates as, as possible. I'm gonna try. Thank you for the idea. For the next part of this interview, David, I'm gonna ask you uh, three questions that I have prepared, and we can go on in any uh, direction. And these questions may or may not be about empty nests, commercial real estate, and or the death of parents. Is there any order that you would like to receive those questions or do you trust me? Taylor, I'll take empty nest for 50. How close are you to having an empty nest? Do you have any big plans or changes in mind? What is next for you? Actually, that is an incredibly relevant question because I actually do have an answer to this. I am one year away, almost on the dot to being an empty nester. I have three kids, a 23-year-old Barnard graduate who works for me. I have a 21-year-old senior at MIT. 
named Eli after my father. And I have a 17-year-old named Jack, a name for the great tennis player Jack Kramer, who is a rising senior at St. Anne's. And it's today is August 31st. And on or about a year from today, we'll be dropping Jack at college uh, and we'll have an empty nest. And I have been at the Hudson Companies, which is a New York City real estate development company, since 1995. So that is 27 years, next year, 28 years of working every day, grinding it out, building housing in New York City, which is a lot of fun, a lot of pressure, a lot of challenges, a lot of hard work. And I've thought for a while that I should take a little time off. And uh, we have a very generous parental leave policy for all of our young parents that I created that policy long after I was no longer a new parent. And I would see all of my younger colleagues take three months off. And so my partner, Sally, and I would often say, hey, when do we get to take our three months? And so it occurred to me recently, God, I'd really like to take three months, but I can't take three months off. I'm a, I'm a parent. I still have Jack at home. My wife, Stacy, would be thrilled. Jack would be thrilled if I all of a sudden said, okay, I'm off, I'm off to uh, climb Kilimanjaro for the next three months. So I realized pretty recently, oh, I can take three months off. Starting a year from now, I'm going to drop Jack at college, and I really don't have to be back until we host Thanksgiving in late November, and that's three months. And so I'm going to take three months off. I have enough uh, of a leadership team here at, at Hudson, uh, where I'm the CEO, to, to take three months off. And uh, I'm going to uh, travel and hike and bike and some of it with my wife and some of it my wife's not going to be interested in. And that is my empty nest plan uh, number one. Uh, next question. Uh, you may not have been the first in our class to lose a parent, but your father's funeral is the first one I remember uh, going to, I mean, definitely of the parents of, of our classmates, but but it, it was celebrated at a synagogue just a few blocks from the school. Was it in the middle of the day? Um, well, school had just ended. Um, so I assume it was like a 10 or 11 a.m. funeral. It wasn't a it wasn't a synagogue. It was the Riverside Chapel, which is right near the school. I think it's on 74th in Amsterdam. Um, my, my question is, uh, had your father prepared you for his death? Of course my father didn't prepare me for his death. It was, you know, does any 55 year old think about preparing their kids for their death? No, there was no, there was no forewarning. Uh, you know, for those who don't know the story, he basically dropped dead on the dance floor of a wedding in New Jersey. Um, on uh, Sunday evening, June 6th, which was right after we finished finals. In fact, I didn't go to the class of 82's uh, commencement exercises. I'm guessing that the funeral was on a Wednesday and the commencement was on a Tuesday. So I, I, I missed the class of 82. Uh, commencement. But no, there was no, I, I don't think he had prepared my mother for, uh, for, for anything. And, you know, my mother, like a lot of, widows then and now, you know, gets thrust into this role of not being prepared to look at uh, financial statements or accounts or, you know, know anything about, you know, some of the elements of the marriage that were the husband's responsibility. Well, the second part of the question is, is uh, now that you've outlived him, do you, have you prepared your kids, 
you're about to go travel the mountains and walk, walk paths and uh, 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 spend three months off. What if you die? Do you think about death? I don't. I'm a poet. I think about death all the time. <laughs> um, well, I guess there's the question of what what is there to prepare for um, and would it do any good? I mean, I think that luckily, thankfully, I'm in a much stronger financial position than uh, Eli Kramer was at 55. And um, so, you know, I think my wife would get it together in a in a much sort of easier way than my mother did. Um, actually, I'll tell you, I, um, I think that, you know, we, we prepared the will when the kids were young. So we had to think about who were going to be the substitute parents raising our kids if, if my wife and I were to go down together. And so we had, yes, we had option A, which was my brother um, and his wife. And then we thought, okay, well, but we actually need a successor to the successor in case my brother and I and his wife all go down at the same time. So I called um, Goldie and asked him to be the, I forget it was the successor executor or the successor parent or something like that. And Goldie uh, thought it was very, he thought it was very sweet that, uh, that, I, that I would suggest that I would predecease him. So, uh, so you know, luckily, luckily, taking it back to 2022, when you look at our class, my father was the first one to pass away when we were um, conscious, you know, older, um, knowing what was going on. But if you look at the class directory, there were a lot of single parent, widow and widowers from Astrid Fitzgerald to Peter Davis. I think there were probably five or six. So people were dying at a younger age in our era. When I think about our cohorts or my kids' friends and their parents and how many widows and widowers there are uh, by graduation day, very, very few. So I do think that dying at 55 happened a little more frequently 35 years ago. I just think in the, in, in the history of the world between famines and plagues and world wars uh you know our we are as lucky as it gets in terms of you know being too young for vietnam and um you know the only the only timing that our generation was susceptible to was aids but in terms of you know lifespans in the history of the world like has it gotten has it ever been as good as it is at at this moment so you know given that it's not surprising that uh, you know, 40, 43 out of 45 of us are still alive at our 35th reunion. Did, uh, did Dorsey Woodson go to Desert Storm? Do you know? I, I can't wait for the conversation. I don't know. But That's Dorsey Woodson. If you're hearing this, I want you on this podcast. Uh, I mean, the reason, the reason I, I exist is because my then 17-year-old father, um, Eli Kramer, growing up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, to a very orthodox family, did not want to go to Yeshiva University. He was done with Orthodox Judaism. He wanted to go to Brooklyn College. And he was warned that if he went to Brooklyn College, he could get drafted at the age of 18, unlike his older brother who went to Yeshiva and got a religious exemption. So he goes to Brooklyn College, turns 18, and is drafted. And he was born in 1926. So he literally was like the last guy drafted by the U.S. Army, uh, joins the Army in the spring of 45 when he was 18 and a half, is in the war for literally a couple of weeks, and he gets blown off a tank in, I think, April of 45, literally two months before the war ended. 
And um, as you know, the class knows, he was a bilateral arm amputee, changed the whole course of his life. And instead of getting married at 23 and having kids in 1949, uh, his whole life changed and he ended up in a different path having kids in 1965 when all of his cohort group had had uh, 15-year-old kids. And so, uh, you know, I think about those kind of age ranges a lot. Yeah, well, me too. That's, I mean, that's me. I, I feel like, I don't know whether I have the youngest kids. You know, uh, we, we should be giving out all of these medals at the reunion. You get a medal for, weren't you the first one to have both parents pass away? Yes, what dark, what kind of dark medal is that? I mean, by 19... So you get a medal for that, and you get a medal for youngest kids. Okay, two medals. All right, we've got to figure out the other, the <laughs> other medals. You said that after folks heard your interview with Tim Harkness, um, when they came up to you at your Yale 35th reunion uh, earlier this year, that you actually made commercial real estate sound interesting. <laughs> was that your uh, plan? Were you trying to do that? And how hard was that? Do you still love it? Do you still find it interesting? Well, Mr. Poet, it's fascinating. Everybody wants to talk real estate. Everybody wants to talk housing. The real estate section is the sports section of the middle class, middle age. Uh, so it doesn't take a lot to make it interesting. We all have homes. We all see new developments. And so I find what I do at the, it, it is the heartbeat at, at the heart of our, our civic arena. And, uh, and that's why, you know, what do they say? If you, uh, if you love what you do, you never go to work. And, uh, that's how I feel. And so, you know, I find it all interesting. You know, I got into this business, um, housing the homeless in Los Angeles on Skid Row. And so I was out to save the world in my early twenties and, uh, got, you know, got into it as a, from a nonprofit housing the homeless standpoint, and then fell in love with the whole issue of housing and development and land use and how we make decisions about our cities and how we try and create affordability. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, the, the one issue that every 20 something wants to talk about is gentrification. So, uh, you know, between issues of rents, issues of gentrification, and now with COVID, what the future of retail is, what the future of hotels are, there is a, there are a plethora of of exciting issues, Taylor. You mentioned tangentially that uh, other people I might have on the, the 83 Dutchman might not have the same, of course they won't have the same um, views looking back on, on Collegiate as you did. So uh, so why don't you flesh that out for me and tell me, you know, what, when, you, when you think of Collegiate, how formative was it for you? Uh, what, what's your happiest memory, a, a curious memory? You know, it's hard for me to separate collegiate from my childhood. It, you know, it, it is my youth and my childhood because I was there for 11 years. My brother went there. My mother was incredibly connected to the school. You know, she continued to go to the collegiate gala long after we had graduated. So collegiate was a, a big part of our lives. Once I had boys, my mother was lobbying me, like, how can I not send them to collegiate? Uh, and I, I did well. Collegiate was the right environment for me. I had a, had a, a drink with T Tony Mark 
a year and a half ago. I had to drink. Tony doesn't drink. And uh, he quoted Hank Bear as saying, collegiate kids either go to Harvard or go to rehab. Uh, and I think the sentiment from Hank, I'm not sure it's 100% true, was that, you know, collegiate is good for some kids, but not all kids. And so I was in the pile where, you know, it's good for me. I, I responded to the, the pressure and the intensity and the competition uh, well and and had a great time as well and um you know to this day um you know some of my closest friends are our classmates there's so there's a group of us that is uh me and goldie mansk and kirsch the four of us have all been each other's uh ushers and the wedding you know we've all been in each other's wedding parties we're still close to this day but not only that 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 group but you know i would say i'm still in touch with half the class like who has that you know my wife went to a big pittsburgh public school she hated every second of it she's maybe in touch with one or two kids and so it's atypical to say that you had a happy childhood you're in touch with half of your high school graduating class and for the most part you had you know unambiguously positive experience which is um, which was, which was, which was my experience. Um, you mentioned, uh, David Goldberg and David Kirsch, and, uh, it reminds me of, uh, a moment. We also mentioned Ali Benedetto early, Ali Benedetto and I were coming down the stairs in the old building and at the bottom of the stairs, you were having a, you know, between classes, conversation, quick conversation with Kirsch. Goldberg and Dishy and Ali Benedetto stops at the top of the stairs, grips my arm and goes, watch this. Hey, David. And all four of your heads turned up at the same time. And he went, Oh my God, what are the chances? It was perfect. I just had to do it. That's sorry. I just had to That's why we call each other by our last names, but you know, David, David is dead. There are no more Davids. You look at you look at the school directories. Um, we're, we're, we're done. But it, 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 there was a David era, that's for sure. By the way, here's I have a funny collegiate anecdote here. <laughs> Molly reminded me. Molly is also a country in Africa, and as you recall, in fifth grade, we studied countries and capitals with George Mitchell. Many years later, I'm in a cab chatting with a New York City cabbie who clearly has an African accent, and I ask him where he's from. And he says, Burkina Faso. And I say in my best collegiate, arrogant uh, tone, like, no, <laughs> you made that up. There's no country called Burkina Faso. I should know. I, I study the countries in Canada. He's like, no, no, Burkina Faso. And I said, all right, if there's a Burkina Faso, what's the capital? And he said, Ouagadougou. Ouagadougou. Like Uwagadugu, you mean you're from Upper Volta? Yeah. And he said, "Oh, we changed the name from Upper Volta to Burkina Faso." That was the name. That was the name of the country. It is now Burkina Faso. Yeah, like, we, we changed the name like 17 years ago. <laughs> like, oh, I, I didn't get the memo, but at least I remembered. <laughs> hey Taylor, let me let me shoot back a question at you. What do, What do you think has been the longest? What do you think has been the biggest impact long term for you from having been a collegiate grad? At collegiate, I was somewhere in the middle you know i wasn't i wasn't uh um at the top of the class i wasn't at the bottom i was somewhere in the middle and suddenly i get to bowden and discovered that the academic uh, preparation that i had been given at collegiate put me in great stead 
and suddenly people on my floor were going, oh my God, you're such a good writer. Oh, how did you learn that? I was like, that was in the homework. I just did the homework. Oh, I should do that. I became a better student the older I got. And it wasn't until I got to graduate school in the early 90s in Kansas, in the middle of Kansas, studying poetry, that I had a 4.0. You know, I think Adam Kasdan, the same thing. Adam Kasdan went from being a, uh, I think, middle of the road collegiate student, under, probably underperforming as he would assess it, to, you know, being a PhD superstar. Right. Yes. I, Adam Kasdan, if you're listening, I want you on this podcast. David, let's end with a couple of lightning round questions. Are you ready? I was born ready. Do you have a, did you have a favorite teacher? And if so, which one? I think I will go with Rye Clark and Shields, Shields and Clark. I thought they were such great teachers. Did you have a favorite class? Favorite class? Now I am stretching my memory. I think the class that had, that I liked and that had a long-term impact was I think it was called American History Survey. Maybe it was 10th grade. But literally to this day, I can name all 45 presidents. I know the Grover Cleveland sandwich, and I attribute it to all of the work we did in 10th grade American history. What about a moment of athletic achievement? First thing comes to mind, because this is the lightning round. Um, actually, two, two. I got the gold medal in the long jump at field day and then tangential to sports there was a night i think in 10th grade maybe 11th grade it was father son night where we competed in all of these activities um, and we got silver dollars if we won and my father had two metal hooks so when it came to like the beanbag toss and all of the goofy activities we were not a strong team but we ended up winning one of the activities where you had these two sort of um, uh, sticks, poles, and you had the silver ball, and you had to sort of modulate as the ball rolled off the sticks to try and get into a high-scoring hole. I forgot the name of it. But we won, and we got a silver dollar, and that was like a great, great victory for Team Kramer. I want to thank you, Taylor, on behalf of the class, for being an extraordinary class agent as one of your predecessors who has been outperformed, I only worry about burnout because we want you to do this job for a very long time. Thank you for listening to the very first episode of 83 Dutchman. I cannot imagine that I will ever get a sponsor for this podcast, but I will be back soon with another episode featuring another guest from the class of 1983. So please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and reach out to me if you'd like to be one of my next guests. This podcast will be utterly unconnected to donations made to the school or class notes. Thanks again to David Kramer, my first guest. This is Taylor Molly saying I will see you soon, if not next May. Future episodes of 83 Dutchman may or may not be underwritten by Aaron Krantz Partners, protecting and prudently growing our clients' wealth.